Well, this week, friends, I hope uh, you all had a chance to see the beautiful moon. It was supposed to be the largest in several decades. Hope you enjoyed the, the, the lightning of the moon and its beauty. The song we just sung says that as beautiful as a moonlight is, Jesus is even more beautiful. And I hope that you experience that beauty of Christ that you see it, that you recognize it, that you're aware of it, that you cherish it in your own life, uh, even, even this week. Friends, this morning, we are opening our scripture to the book of Titus, chapter 1. We'll be reading verse 5 through 9. For those of you who are new to our congregation, if you're visiting with, with us this morning, we're so glad you're with us. We as a congregation are working our way through this book of Titus, a book that speaks to us about sound doctrine and how sound doctrine leads to godliness. And this morning, the passage we're going to read this morning um, deals specifically with the leadership of the church. Who should lead the church? Uh, one, of the, one of the authors has said uh, that choosing pastors is the most important decision a congregation makes since the pastors will shape the congregation through their teaching and their modeling. Another commentator um, has said uh, the following about church leadership, uh, that, that one, the one-person pastorate, uh, like the one-person band in which one musician plays all the instruments, is not a New Testament model of a local church. Rather, it is a team ministry that room can be found for different people with different gifts so that uh, different specialties, ordained and lay, full-time and part-time, salaried and volunteer, volunteer members can shepherd together God's flock. Well, friends, this morning we want to look at uh, the theme of church leadership and uh, we want to consider who should lead the congregation as shepherds, as elders, as pastors. We've been saying in a number of ways uh, in the last few weeks that a local church should not be shepherded only by one person. We also said a few weeks ago that a local church should be responsible for those who are uh, for, for, for choosing the shepherds or the elders of the church. That means that the the appointment of elders or shepherds should not be done just by one person or just by a select few, but by the entire membership, by all those who are members in a local church. Uh, friends, if you, are, if you are visiting with us this morning and may think, I'm not, I'm not interested to consider or know much about church leadership, friends, realize that if you're a Christian, first of all, you should be a member of a church. If you're a Christian, you should be a member of a church. And if you are a member of a church you should have a responsibility in affirming those who shepherd God's church. If you are a member in a church where you don't, you don't have a responsibility for choosing those who are shepherding God's congregation, uh, then you perhaps should consider changing churches. Uh, because the New Testament teaches us that members are responsible for those put in leadership of the church. Um, it is with that thought that uh, John Stott at one point says um, that the selection of presbyter or bishops or elders was a corporate responsibility. 
True, Paul told Titus to appoint elders and lay down the conditions of their eligibility, but his emphasis on their need to have a blameless reputation indicates that the congregation will have a say in the selection process. Well, friends, that means that if you have a say in the selection process, that means that you need to know how to select, based on what criteria to select, based on what qualifications to think about who should be in the leadership of the church. Well, with that in mind, we come to this passage that lays out for us what are the qualifications for church leadership. Let's read this passage together, and uh, let's, uh, let's ask God to, to bless us as we consider these qualifications and how to assess them. Uh, here's the, the word of the Lord for us this morning. Paul said to Titus, This is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. If anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife and his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. For an overseer, as God's steward, must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain, but hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. Amen. This is the word of the Lord for us. Would you join me in prayer? Asking God to bless the preaching of his word. Father, we pray for your presence by your spirit to be among us especially as we are here in the act of listening to your word. Would you give us ears to hear? Father, we pray and I ask that you would speak to us through the preaching of your word. In the name of Christ, we pray for his glory and honor. Amen. Three weeks ago, when we started looking at this particular passage in more detail, we, uh, we began looking at the importance of elders in the life of the church. We said that elders are important for the order of the Christian community, for the life of the church. They are important because they are God's stewards. They are called to care for God's church. And as stewards, they will give an account to God for their stewarding. Not, just, not simply to the church, but to God for the stewarding that they are to give. Uh, two weeks ago, we considered... What are the biblical qualifications? And we started looking at these qualifications in slow motion. Uh, we could go quickly through them, but we decided to go slower through them because not only are we supposed to know what these qualifications are, but since we are held responsible to appoint and to affirm who the shepherds and the elders in this church are, the members of the church need to know how to check them, how to examine, how to qualify, how to assess if someone meets these qualifications. So we're going slow motion through these uh, because we want to equip you, every one of you, not only to understand the qualification, we want to equip every one of you to know how to assess it, uh, either in your own life or in the life of those whom the church might consider for elders. We looked two weeks ago that the qualification, these qualifications are not unique to elders. 
these qualifications, most of them are for all Christians. Um, and uh, so when we, when we consider these qualifications, even if you might say about you, I don't ever plan to be an elder, um, I still encourage you to consider these also for your own life because these qualifications, these categories um, are things that God encourages us and calls for us to live out as Christians. The first qualification that we see in this passage, just as a way of review, uh, was the qualification of being above reproach. And we mentioned two weeks ago that this qualification, being above reproach, does not mean being perfect or without spot or without blemish, but it means being without blame, meaning being um, in a way that is not blameworthy, not being able to be accused of a, of a pattern of sin in our lives that is, that is, that is clear and is a, a part of what our life is. We should live in a kind of way where people um, may not say and see an, a, a consistent inconsistency, a consistent trouble or a consistent area where we're failing to live uh, as Christians. Um, and, and then the rest of the qualifications, we could say, describe what this above reproach means. Um, we looked at the qualification of being a one woman man, the husband of one wife, and we saw what that means, that primarily um, that qualification refers to someone's commitment and fidelity to marriage and to sexual purity, um, so that um, it's not just a matter of marital status, but it's a matter of marital fidelity and sexual purity. Well, today, we want to continue through this list of qualifications. Um, as we work through these, um, I, my encouragement is that as a congregation, we would grow in knowing what is the kind of men that God calls to shepherd His church. So this morning, let's look at another qualification. An elder should invest in his children. An elder should invest in his children. Look at verse 6 again. If anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife and his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. This qualification of, of the children of an elder is an interesting one. It's a difficult one to interpret as well. Uh, this qualification has a an, an, uh, following ambiguity in the translation. If a man has children, must his children be believers in order for the man to be considered for eldership? The ESV translation from which we read seems to indicate this interpretation that in order for a man to be considered for eldership, his children must be believers. But the word used in the Greek language for believers uh, is a word that can be also interpreted and is also used and also means uh, faith or faithful or trustworthy. The authorized King James Version translates the same verse as an elder must have faithful children. According to the second translation, or the second way of translating this verse, uh, the difference is not between believing and unbelieving children, but the difference is between obedient, respectful, and lawless, uh, uncontrolled 
children. In other words, are the children of an elder, are they faithful, obedient, respectful, trustworthy? Whether or not they are believers. Well, you see, these two different ways of interpreting this phrase uh, makes a big difference. If we take the, the first possibility that uh, it refers to children as needing to be believers, that means that unless an elder has children who have professed faith in Christ, um, that he, is, he should not be an elder. And if his children turn away from God and no longer walk in the way of God, then he should step down from being an elder. I do know men, and I know commentators who take this view that this is the meaning of this passage, and, uh, and I, I know pastors who believe this is the meaning of this passage, and when, when one of their children uh, turned away from the Lord, this pastor uh, stepped down from, from pastoring. He did uh, act in accordance with his conviction on how he interpreted this passage. But I'm not convinced that this passage speaks about children needing to be believers. There's a number of reasons that I'm convinced from Scripture that the, the phrase here refers to children who are faithful or trustworthy. Let's look at some of the reasons why um, it, Paul refers here to children who are faithful or trustworthy, not believers. Um, the first reason is that in this context, in, in, the, in just the next few verses in verse 9, Paul uses the adjective pista uh, or, or pistis um, to speak about something else, to speak about the word. In verse 9, Paul uses the same expression when he says that an elder must hold firm to the trustworthy word. Literally, it's the word that is faithful or the word of faith. Uh, interesting that, that in this passage, in this verse, the translation uses the word trustworthy, the trustworthy word. Uh, Paul uh, speaks here about a word that can be trusted and relied on. A same expression Paul uses again in chapter 3, verse 8. He says, this saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things. In other words, the, the phrase would be again, this word is, is faithful, is reliable. You can rely on it. That's why the translators in this verse use the word trustworthy. Paul uses the same word again in, in his second letter to Timothy. When Paul speaks to Timothy and says, you should entrust this teaching to other men so that they can teach others. Paul describes the other men with the word, you should entrust what you heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust it to faithful men. Same expression. So that when Paul uses this phrase to speak about the children of, of elders, the, the, what they must be is not so much that they must be believers, although that would be wonderful and that should be desired, but the issue is that they would be, first, that they would be faithful and trustworthy. And then the next few words describe to us what that faithfulness, what that trustworthiness uh, looks like. He goes on to say that his children um, should not be open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. Uh, this description, that the children should not be um, charged, open to the charge of debauchery and insubordination, 
unpacks for us a little bit of the kind of character, the kind of life that these children of elders should have. Debauchery or dissipation means wild, disorderly living. Insubordination, well, friends, all of us know that, right? Disobedience, rebellion, uh, unruliness. Are someone's children characterized by such wild or disorderly, rebellious way of life? If so, that person should not be an elder. And if he's an elder, he should consider to step down, at least for a season, to take care and pay attention to his life in the home. Now, again, I'm not convinced that Paul speaks here of children who simply turn their backs to God and do not become believers or regenerate. I think Paul here is speaking about children who um, are to be faithful and trustworthy. Another reason for taking the interpretation that I presented to you is uh, if we look at the parallel verses in 1 Timothy chapter 3, where Paul gives other qualifications uh, there, and we look at how Paul speaks about the qualification for children in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 4, in that passage, Paul says that an elder must manage his own household well, with dignity, I'm sorry, with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. In other words, can a man practice his leadership in the home so that his home is a place where the God-given authority of the parents are pract- is practiced well, not abusively, but neither ne- neglectingly, uh, but with dignity? Are children in the home learning to live under authority, under God's authority, manifested through the children? In 1 Timothy uh, 3.5, Paul says, Why should we evaluate an elder's qualifications based on his leadership in the home? Paul says, if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? Friends, in other words, before a man can become a steward of God's church, of God's household, he must prove his ability to lead and manage first and foremost, in his own home. If a man cannot disciple his own children, why would, we tr- why would we trust him to be able to disciple others? We're not saying that the children of elders must be super kids. You know, the church should not look at an elder's kids and have a different set of expectations than from all the other kids in the church. Yet a man's children can reveal how well that person is managing his household. Even if his children don't experience regeneration, even if they're not believers, do these children live a life of submission, of respect towards others, and obedience? Or are they characterized by unruliness, characterized by by that kind of rebellious attitude of the heart that, just de- that does destructive things. Assuming that an elder is married and still has children in the home, he's evaluated here a, a, a based on his leadership in the home. Now, one of the assumptions of this passage is that uh, the children of a potential elder are still living with the parents. When, uh, when children move out of the home and they, they begin their adult lifehood, um, th- the parent in some ways is no longer responsible to carry on that authority over 
over the child. So we're not dealing here with, with children who have become adults, um, but we're dealing with children over whom the parents still have authority and responsibility. Now, friends, let me also encourage you that our approach as parents, and if you're a child or a, an adult son or, or daughter, realize that God wants to continue to use the influence of parents in our lives or in the lives of children even after we, be, we grow into adulthood. And someone's ownership and initiative to continue to invest in one's children should continue to be done even, even if the child moves out of the house. I, I was encouraged this weekend uh, by the example of Jonathan Edwards. Last night I was reading to our, our oldest son a short biography about Jonathan Edwards and I was impressed by one of the letters he wrote to one of his daughters um, even though she moved out of the house, no longer living in the home and lived in a distant place, the father showed his deep interest in her well-being, not just physically, but also spiritually. He wrote this letter to her on July 26, 1749. After speaking about several physical wishes and hopes uh, and asking how she's doing physically uh, and health-wise, Here's what uh, Jonathan Edwards wrote to, her, to his uh, daughter. But yet my greatest concern is for your soul's good. I hope that you will maintain a strict and constant watch over yourself and against all temptations, that you don't forget and forsake God, and particularly that you don't grow slack in your secret time with God. Retire often from this vain world and all its bubbles, empty shadows and vain amusements, and converse with God alone, and seek that divine grace and comfort, the least drop of which is more worth than all the riches, gaiety, pleasures, and entertainments of the whole world. How sweet for a, son, for a father to write and encourage his children, even though they've moved away from the home, to continue to have that kind of desire to influence one's children, uh, not only in, in, the, in the earthly matters, but also spiritually. Oh, friends, even though God used Jonathan Edwards in some great ways to influence masses of people in the first great awakening in the 1700s, um, God first used Jonathan Edwards to influence his own family, his wife and children. And Jonathan Edwards took very seriously this role as a spiritual leader to uh, invest in his children's lives. Um, let me speak to the men of Park Hills. If any of you desire to be used by God in the work of shepherding, whether in the immediate future or in the distant future, the first area where you should seek to excel and be above reproach is in how you lead your family. If you have children in the home, do you have a daily routine of teaching them God's Word, a family worship? And besides that routine, what about in the daily experiences of life? When you fix something at the, at the house, or when you work something around the house, or when you, when, you, when you play with your kids, when you do stuff that's just fun for the kids to do, do you bring God in the picture? When you talk at the dinner table, do you speak about God's things? Not that you need to make the conversation become a Bible study all the time. You don't, you don't need to do that all the time. 
But do you think, bring the things of God in, in your conversation? And do your children see that you are a, a, a man, uh, or if, if uh, uh, the wife, if you're a, a wife who, who loves God above all things, that you cherish God, and that's evident in your life, in your conversations, that you cherish God's people, that you cherish God's Word? Do your children see that in you? It's amazing, friends, that the first two specific qualifications that describe being above reproach refers to how one leads and relates to his wife and how one influences his own children. Friends, I hope that as members of, of this congregation that all of us seek to live in this way, whether or not the Lord calls us to be elders. But those whom the Lord calls us to be uh, among us, uh, who to be elders, we would definitely want to be sure that we examine these personal family life qualifications. The second or the next qualification that we want to look at this morning is that an elder should not be arrogant. An elder should not be arrogant. Look at verse 7. For an overseer, as God's steward, must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant. The word can also uh, refer to being self-willed or stubborn. The same word is used uh, by Peter in 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 10, where Peter speaks of people who despise authority. Peter calls them bold and willful. They do not tremble as they blaspheme the glorious ones. Willful or arrogant. How do you assess this trait? Now let me be clear what arrogance is not. Being arrogant or self-willed does not mean that a person um, has no convictions or strong opinions or strong views. We should have convictions, and we should especially have convictions that are based on Scripture. It's not just about having strong opinions. Arrogance or self-will is not just about that. Uh, what is arrogance or self-will? Instead, arrogance or self-will is uh, being, having that self-assertive, independent, ungracious, particularly towards others' attitude, uh, especially towards those who have a different opinion than you. How do we spot this attitude of, of, uh, or this characteristic of arrogance or self-will or stubbornness? Does a man act in kindness, in patience, and compassion to various situations, even to those who are different than him. You can see how a man, um, how he deals on this qualification of arrogance or self-will in how he deals with people who are different than him. Is he a man who fights off pride, or does he like to exalt himself? Does he always talk about himself? Or does he turn the conversation to talk about and, and be interested in, in other people? Is he a man who is open to submit himself to others when it's not a matter of biblical truth? Or is he a man who always has to have it his way, and if not, the highway? Is he a man who always has to have the last word in all things? Is he a man who is aware of his own inadequacies and need for God's spiritual protection? Or is he a man who is overly confident in his abilities? How does a man respond to criticism? Does he invite constructive criticism from other people? Is he open to hear other people criticize him? Now, it's never fun to hear that. 
but is he open to hear it? Or does he communicate an attitude that no one should speak anything wrong against him? Does a man take the disagreements of other people as personal opposition? Friends, realize that when a church has a plurality of, of elders, one of the key parts of working as a team of elders is that an elder must know how to submit to other biblically qualified elders who might see a situation differently. Now, here's a, a caveat. Um, this is why it's important for ev all the elders on an, on an elder team to be convinced that the other elders are biblically qualified. Otherwise, it would be hard to submit to those who are not biblically qualified for that role. So I just want to point that out. Biblically, when we're dealing with also biblical truth, um, that is an important category. But assuming that's the case, that all elders are biblically qualified and they're all aware and convinced, that, and all the elders are convinced that the other elders are biblically qualified, the question is, can an elder submit to other elders when he will be in a minority? Assuming that it does not deal with biblical truth. Um, an elder must have this willingness this readiness to show humility. Um, a, man, a man who's called to be an elder must be a man who, who practices being poor in spirit, who receives correction, who is aware of his own inadequacies and dependence upon God, who is aware that God can, can speak to his own heart through the mouths of other members or other elders. And here's some more applications to consider. How do you tease out? How do you know if someone is... Um, meets a qualification of not being arrogant. Is a man able to admit if he was wrong? Can he admit to other people that he may have been wrong? And when he was wrong or he made a mistake, can he ask for forgiveness? Is it hard for him to say those words to others? Or does he have to present a kind of view that somehow uh, he, is, he, he cannot be wrong? His way, he's his views are always the right way in all matters. Is he a man to, who can't submit to others and allow others to correct him? And is he a man who's able to uh, accept uh, correction? Does he despise the authority of other elders over him? If he does not have an attitude of, of biblical submission to the current elders, uh, he might not be able to practice the authority of elders towards others. Friends, especially because shepherding is a role of spiritual authority, especially because shepherding is a role of practicing oversight and, and, and being a steward, a manager of, of God's flock over God's people, um, an elder must not succumb to this trap of arrogance or self-will or stubbornness. It is a very dangerous combination for someone to get into the role of, of eldering and shepherding and still to have this problem. And friends, the abuses that, that can be done, that, be, can, be, that can happen uh, by an elder who is arrogant or self-willed are tremendous. The dangers are tremendous. And some of you may have been in churches where you have seen that happen. You have seen the kind of, uh, the kind of danger that can happen in a local church when the one called to shepherd is an arrogant, self-willed person. Not only will he cause damage to the other members, 
not only will he cause damage to the, to the flock, meaning to the people, but there, there's another danger. A self-willed, arrogant man will show his arrogance not only towards, towards people, he will show his arrogance towards God himself. He will try to lead the congregation in his own ways and have no or little submission to the ways of God and to God's word. That's why it's, it's interesting why in 1 Peter chapter 5, the passage that speaks to elders, uh, Peter speaks after addressing elders, he speaks now to everyone, including the leaders. He says, clothe yourselves, all of you, with, humili- with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Friends, can you imagine being in a church where the elder or one of the elders is, is proud? And God's word tells us that God is against the proud? You do the math, you do the logic, that means God would be against the elder of this church. Well, you don't want to be in a church where God is against the elder of the church. It's, un, it's unwise, it's not good, it's detrimental. But worse than, than, than the human relationships that can be bruised by an arrogant leader, worse than that is the fact that an arrogant leader will not have the humility to submit himself to God's word and lead God's people in God's ways. That's the greatest danger. I love how Isaiah 66 too, um, says, God says, but this is the one to whom I will look. He who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles on my word. Well, friends, realize that we fight off arrogance by first of all, cultivating our submission to God and his word. We cultivate humility by seeking to be poor in spirit, which by the way, the phrase poor in spirit is a phrase that refers to our impression of our own spiritual need. We are not self-dependent beings. We are people who, are need, who have needs, and our needs are not just emotional. Our greatest needs are spiritual. Friends, this is where, if you're not a Christian, this is where the gospel confronts each and every one of us. The first truth, actually, that the gospel confronts the, the, a, a man who is proud and self-sufficient in his ways is to declare to that person that we are bankrupt. One of the first things that gospel speaks to a man who thinks he has it all or thinks he can leave his, lead his life and live his life in a way that, that pleases himself and is about him, is about his own ways, is to say the gospel confronts us with our own inadequacies, with our own spiritual bankruptcy, with our own um, f- being completely failures spiritually. And, and some, some people might say, well, I don't see that in my life. I don't feel like I'm a spiritual failure. I don't feel like I've, I'm a spiritual bankrupt. What do you mean? This is totally new language. Well, friends, if you don't see that need in you, it's perhaps because you don't understand who God is and what we have done towards God. God, the Bible tells us that God is a creator of the universe. He's a perfect God. He's a, he's a holy God. There's no imperfection in him, and he cannot receive anyone who has any taint of sin in his presence. Mankind has rebelled against God. And because of that rebellion, we have incurred not just God's displeasure, we have incurred God's wrath. And our own sinfulness, our own rebellion, we have now passed on that rebellion to our posterity. Adam and Eve in their first rebellion 
has passed on the corruption of sin to every one of their posterity. That's why when every one of us are born, we are born with a spiritual deficiency. We are born with a spiritual bankruptcy. If you're not aware of your spiritual bankruptcy, it's perhaps because you have not heard the truth of the gospel that says that we are all sinners, that all have sinned and have fallen short of the glory of God, and the penalty of sin is death. That's why we, all of us, are spiritually bankrupt. And our only way to solve that bankruptcy is to realize that God has provided a way for our spiritual um, failure to be, to be remedied. God has made it possible for His wrath to be appeased. And that way, that possible way was to Christ who died in our place so that through His death and resurrection, the wrath of God against our rebellion might be fully put aside, might be fully satisfied so that all those who turn to God by repenting of their sin and trusting in Jesus might actually be adopted, might actually be received in God's family. Oh, friends, this is the hope of the gospel that we receive. If you've never repented, if you've never um, turned away from your sin and trusted in Christ for salvation, realize that God wants to offer you and calls you to turn to Him so that your spiritual bankruptcy might be paid off. And not only that, your, your, your spiritual debt would be paid off, God would give you His inheritance instead. In Christ, we receive all the inheritances that God has given Christ. They are now given to all those who turn to God in repentance and faith. Friends, that's why we think that Jesus is more precious than anything this world can give us. That's why we sang that song earlier, that Jesus is more fair. He's more beautiful. He's more precious than anything this world can give us. Friends, I hope that if you've not turned to God, if you've not repented of your sin, that you would do so even now before this service is dismissed. And if you'd like to know more about that, if you'd like to talk to someone about this repentance and faith in Christ, I'd love to talk to you at the end of the service. Friends, one of the things that happens to us when we come to turn to God in faith and repentance is that we become people who are aware of our spiritual inadequacies all the time. All the time. Until we get to heaven, we realize we are not yet like Jesus. There are still areas where we can grow. There are still areas where we need the encouragement of other believers. Even pastors, even elders need the encouragement of other uh, shepherd, of other uh, members in the flock to encourage them, to keep them accountable. Oh, friends, none of us have yet arrived at being perfect in Christ. So spiritual people are aware of their spiritual inadequacies. That's why one of the characteristics, one of the qualifications for elders is that elders cannot be arrogant because that goes exactly the opposite of everything that a Christian should be, everything that a Christian should live like. Friends, an elder should not be arrogant. The third one is that an elder should not be quick-tempered. Friends, because we're going to be looking at these in slow motion, we're going to leave this one out uh, after Thanksgiving. Uh, we're going to stop here, and we're going to look at this qualification next time.
but I want to encourage us to think carefully. We're going through these qualifications in slow motion because we want to understand them and we want to be able to, to, to assess how is it that as members of the congregation, we can see who are the people that God might call to shepherd us and be shepherds over us and care for us uh, to lead us in God's path. I pray that as a congregation, we would be a people who care deeply about, um, about making sure that the, those called to shepherd, those called to lead this church, are people who meet God's standards. Why? Because they're God's stewards, and they're called to shepherd over God's church. If it was our church, if it was our shepherds, then we might have the right to tell and write in what we want of those qualifications to be. But shepherds are God's stewards over God's church, and therefore we must listen to God's ways in terms of how to qualify people for that role. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you that you are a God who instructs your people and tells your people who are those whom you call to shepherd and guide and protect and lead your church. Father, as we, as we are considering this list of qualifications, as we are considering the, the plurality of elders in our own congregation, oh Lord, we pray, would you continue to guide us in your ways? Give us discernment. Give us grace. Give us wisdom. Father, above all, give us a heart that is able and willing to tremble at your word in humility, that we would be people who gladly and joyfully would submit to your ways because you are our God. You saved us. Oh God, we pray to, that we would be people who recognize and declare and display the power of the gospel, not only in our lives as individuals, but also in our lives as a church. In the name of Christ we pray. Amen.